All right, it's time for another Five Questions podcast. Thanks for joining us for this one. Hope you enjoyed the last one, and I really hope you enjoyed our last service at First Free Church, the Worship Together service. That was so much fun. I'm actually recording this on the very next day, so uh, it's still very fresh in my memory, and it was great to have all the kids involved and up on stage, and just a really fun service to be a part of, so I can't wait to do another one of those. I'm going to have a question related to our kids to start things off with, and we're going to get into four other questions as we go along with this as well. The first one is, how do I know if my child is ready for baptism? And that's a really good question. Uh, A lot of us as parents, we struggle with knowing whether or not our child has actually placed their faith in Jesus. We struggle with knowing whether it's the right timing for them to be baptized or if we should hold off. I've been through this with with uh, two kids already, one who has been baptized and one who has not yet been baptized. So let me try to answer this question as best as I can. The first thing I want to do is make sure we're clear about what baptism is. We're talking right now about water baptism, which is a symbolic act demonstrating a heart that is dedicated to God. John the Baptist baptized people to show that they were repenting from their sins And Jesus said that John baptized with water, but that his followers would also be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that happens when a person believes in Jesus. We know that's the case, that it's that the Holy Spirit baptism happens when someone believes in Jesus, because we see that in Acts 10, when the Gentiles believe in Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit. And then Peter says, can anyone object to them being baptized since they have received the Holy Spirit already? So they already received the baptism of the Spirit. Jesus talked about, now they would be baptized physically in water as an outward demonstration of that inward change. So we also see in the Bible that baptism is always of believers. That's important to understand. There is no instance of an unbeliever or a baby ever being baptized in the Bible. In fact, one of the earliest references to infant baptism outside of the Bible, because there is no reference to it inside the Bible, but one of the earliest references outside of the Bible comes from the church leader Tertullian, who lived from 155 AD to 240 AD, so shortly after the time of the apostles. And he cautioned people against infant baptism, and he implied in his caution that the people who were doing it didn't really understand what baptism meant. It seems that the people who were baptizing their kids were thinking that it had some saving effect. And Tertullian notes that water baptism doesn't save you. So his conclusion is it might actually be dangerous to baptize infants and have those children thinking that they're already in God's family if they haven't actually repented and believed personally. In fact, Tertullian goes on to say that it might be dangerous for the ones who are sponsoring the baptism because they might be leading a little one astray. And remember, Jesus said it would be better for a millstone to be hung around someone's neck and be thrown into the sea than for them to lead a little one astray. So this is one of the earliest references to infant baptism, and it's very negative and and basically says, look, parents are baptizing their kids thinking that it's going to have some saving effect on them. And we know that's not true theologically. That's Tertullian's argument. And so there's no point in doing it. On top of that, it may actually be a very negative thing to do that. So I just want to make sure we're clear about what kind of baptism we are talking about here. And that specifically the the water baptism that we see in scripture is a baptism for those who have believed in Jesus. Why is that important? Well, because if we're asking, when is my child ready for baptism? A major question is, have they believed in Jesus? And so understanding 
what baptism is and what we're talking about does make a big difference in knowing if a child is ready for baptism. So here are some things to look for to see if a child is ready for baptism. I'm going to give you a few R words to make it easy to remember, three different R words, and these are what you can look for as a parent. Number one is regeneration. Is there evidence of a changed life and heart in your child? Do you see evidence of the Holy Spirit at work? And this shows up in a lot of different ways. It can be sensitivity to the things of God. It can be a desire to understand the Bible on a deeper level than just the fun versions of the stories we tell sometimes. They want to dig deeper into it. It can look like conviction and heartfelt apologies after doing something wrong where you don't have to prompt it. They just You can tell that they feel deeply convicted and grieved that they did something wrong. And it's not just a bad feeling, but it's kind of, it's more than that. It, it, it affects them deeply. You see the fruit of the spirit coming out, even when it's not forced or expected. You just see, wow, they are exhibiting this love and, and goodness and gentleness and kindness when maybe you wouldn't have seen it before. So is there evidence of regeneration? The next R is readiness. And this refers to the child's own readiness for baptism as they indicate it. Has your child indicated that they want to be baptized? And have they done this on their own without you having to bring it up to them? And I would recommend waiting until they bring it up. With my two oldest kids, even after they brought it up and asked to be baptized, we held off for a while and would have conversations with them when they asked and try to determine if they are ready or, or not ready. Are they regenerated or are they not regenerated? And those are judgment calls, admittedly. But then in both instances so far, we've told them a couple of times, we think it's best to wait until you're a little older, until you understand it a little bit better. We, we love it. It's great that you want to be baptized. I think that's wonderful. But based on some of the answers to the questions for a while, we just felt like, you know what? You don't fully understand what the gospel is yet. You, you can recite some of the answers you've heard at church and some of the things you've heard us say, but it doesn't seem like you've really grasped it on your own. And that's, that's okay. That's fine. Again, if baptism doesn't save, if it's not a work required for salvation, then there's nothing wrong with waiting and making sure they really understand it. So this happened with both of our kids. And in my experience, most kids raised in the church and seen the baptisms of other kids will want to bring up baptism at some point. So let them bring it up to you. Wait until they're ready. And don't be afraid to wait if you don't think that they are ready. It's not going to hurt anything. So the first R was regeneration. Is there evidence of regeneration? The second R is readiness. Is there evidence of that? And the third is reasoning. And that kind of goes along with readiness, but more than just the child bringing it up to you, does your child understand the gospel really well? And obviously they don't need to be a theological scholar here, but they need to fully understand the idea that people are sinful, that we can't earn our way to God and to heaven. Your kid needs to understand that Jesus is God who became a person, lived a perfect life to die in our place. And the only way to be in God's family and spend eternity with him is to believe who Jesus is and that he died for us. They also need to understand that baptism doesn't save us. It's a way of showing a change that has already happened inside of us. And they need to understand that this is a public commitment to other Christians that they're going to try to live differently and to follow Jesus' teachings. So it's best, this is really important, it's best to try to figure this out through open-ended questions of your child. Don't feed them the answers. Don't spoon feed them what they what you want them to say. Don't ask yes or no questions. 
So here are some questions you can ask to try to determine their readiness and their reasoning around baptism. Questions like, why do you want to be baptized? Another question would be, what do you need to be saved from? And then you could follow that up with why and what did God do to save you? Another good question is, do you believe that baptism saves you? Why or why not? And they need to understand baptism is not what saves you. Another thing you could say to your child is, can you explain to me how someone could know for sure that they're going to heaven? And see what they say with that question. Or how do you feel about standing up in front of a group of people to share your story of believing in Jesus? Because ideally, that's what we would want every kid to be able to do. Just in a sentence or two, how did you come to believe in Jesus? So if you go through that process and you don't think that your child is ready, encourage them to wait. Have the conversation again in the future. And then wait until they bring it up again. And, and then if you think they're ready, whenever you think they're ready and understand the reasoning, then fill out the form at efree.org baptism. We'll have one of our staff do a short interview with them. And usually when we interview... We put a lot of faith in the parents bringing their child and understanding that they are ready. So the parents are kind of sponsoring the child and representing them and saying, we have determined as parents, they understand the gospel and their faith and they are ready to make this public commitment. Now, we are also coming alongside to try to help ascertain that readiness. But at the end of the day, we, we are kind of putting that responsibility on the parents, bringing their child to say, yes, I, I have my stamp of approval on this. And if we, if we see something where there's a, a really big mismatch in understanding, then we will bring it up to the parents and say, hey, we, we think this may not be the right time and we don't want to give false assurance of salvation. It might be best to wait, but that's, that would be a very rare thing to do. So that's question number one. Question number two goes in a completely different direction. And this was an awesome question that I got last week. Um, and I'm just going to read it to you because it's so good. So when the Israelites were in the wilderness, we're shifting gears big time here. When the Israelites were in the wilderness, they evidently had livestock for sacrifices because we read about the sacrifices that they performed in a few different places. So why did they complain about not having food or meat? So really quick, you probably know the story already, but the Israelites are complaining that they don't have food. God gives them manna. They complain that they don't have meat. God gives them quail. And the question is, well, how are they able to do sacrifices if they are claiming they didn't have food or meat? So really love that question. I already answered it for the person who asked it, but I figured I would share it with you as well because I just found it to be really interesting. And I did spend some time, this person also researched it and, and she did her due diligence to try to figure out, can I find the answer to this? Did not find it. I did the same thing, did a lot of digging. I wasn't able to find any commentaries or articles that mentioned the scarcity of food compared with the availability of animals, or for that matter, grain, because they also had grain sacrifices. And so they, they did um, ha do grain sacrifices, and yet they mentioned this lack of food. And so here's my educated guess then, based on what we know and, and the digging around that I did, just putting two and two together here. So I think that the Israelites probably were able to keep a small, um, a small stock of animals, maybe among the priests, but they didn't have enough for the average person to eat any meat. 
So it's, it's probable in my mind that the cries of the Israelites with, for a lack of food and a lack of meat came up from the general populace and maybe not from the better equipped Israelites, the ones who were able to take more things with them, um, the, the priests who maybe maintained animals for sacrifices, those were off limits probably for eating. So they probably, yes, had some animals, but most people did not have animals. Most people did not have grain. And so I think that's what's happening here. We, we do see in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers that they do animal sacrifices, but uh, we just uh, don't have any evidence that they had enough of them to go around. There were a lot of people, I think some estimates put it as high as maybe a, a million people perhaps, that were coming out of Egypt. And so they just likely did not have enough available, but they did have a little bit of grain and a little bit of uh, a few animals to be able to sacrifice. And that also makes me think, wow, what an incredible display of faith. Every time we see them make those sacrifices of animals or grain, I think it's three times we see animal sacrifices in one time that's actually recorded for us during this wilderness journey that they are making these sacrifices. That is those priests at that time saying, here is some of the very limited food we have available that we are going to offer as sacrifices to God and burn up. And that's a, that's a tremendous act of faith to me. So I think that's really something. And then, of course, when God provided the manna, the, the little food wafers, and provided the quail for them, that was a huge faith builder as well. Because if you recall the story, he said, do not gather more than you need for that day. And the ones that did, the next morning, all of the extra they gathered was all spoiled and rotten and full of maggots. And so from that point on, every day, they only gathered what they needed, which was a massive test of faith and a faith builder for them to trust that, hey, God's going to provide for the next day as well. I feel like there's a good lesson for us in there of trusting God for what we need every day. It reminds you of what Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. Give us today just what we need, God, so that we can trust you for what you'll give us tomorrow. That does not take away other scriptures that talk about uh, being like the ant and preparing for the future and being a wise steward. But certainly when it comes to our faith, we need to hold what God has provided somewhat loosely and be generous with it and understand that, that maybe if we don't have everything we would like to have, that's okay. We can still trust God even if we haven't been blessed with the resources to be super prepared for the future at this point in time. But if we have the availability, certainly we should be wise and do that. I'm going to shift gears again now. Question number three. We're going back to the chosen for this one. And this is another question I got via email probably a couple months ago, but it's a, it's a good one. Here's the question. The Chosen is a great show, they say, but some Christians are saying we shouldn't watch it because of the Mormon influence. Should we not watch The Chosen if Mormons are involved? Great question. And it's one that's really hard to cover without talking a little bit about what the Mormons believe and why that's a problem for what I would consider myself to be an evangelical Christian. So, Mormons call themselves Christians, and they use a lot of the same source material and the same language as we do, but they, they do have some very different beliefs, and they use that language somewhat differently, and I wouldn't consider them to be an evangelical Christian, a Christian that believes in the, the gospel the same way that I understand it and sharing that with other people. So what are those differences that Mormons believe that we wouldn't agree with? Well, the Mormons believe in something called eternal exaltation that people can eventually become gods. Mormons also have extra scriptures like the Book of Mormon that have questionable origins and no basis from our perspective for being considered authoritative scripture, but they would consider the Book of Mormon and a few other books as being on par with 
as authoritative as scripture. Mormons also don't believe that Jesus has the position of son within the Trinity, but actually he is a literal child of God and not God. So we would say the son of God is not son in the sense of a, a, um, a child that has been produced by a father, but son in the sense of position. It's a royal son. Uh, you may have heard of the term royal we, which is the idea of we being used to speak of prominence and preeminence, not necessarily a plurality. Well, a royal son is not necessarily someone who's a biological son of someone else. And it was used in ancient times to refer to kings who had positioned themselves under the authority of another king, but they weren't actually their son. So you'd have a greater king saying to a lesser king in some instances, my son. It's a term of respect and endearment, but also one of authority. Or you would have another king referring to himself as the son of another king or another king as his father. And that was a position of sonship, not necessarily a lineage of sonship. So we would say that Jesus is fully God and is the son of the Trinity, the son of God. Mormons take that in a different way and say, no, no, no. He's literally a child of God created by God. Now, here's the big one, and there are more than this, but I'll just give you the high-level ones. The big one is that Mormons believe that salvation is made possible by Jesus, but not fully possible only by believing in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. So for a Mormon, obedience to the commandments and good works that you do and participation in church rituals are also necessary for salvation. And they help to determine what level of heaven you make it to in the afterlife. So Mormons are not Christians in the same way that we would refer to evangelical Christians. They don't follow the teachings of Jesus and the apostles that salvation is by grace and not by works. They reject the teaching of Jesus that he is one with the Father. And they are, to be honest with you, guilty of breaking the commandment to not add words to scripture. They literally add things that they say are authoritative scripture. And we would certainly disagree with that. So obviously that creates a challenge in partnering with Mormons on spiritual endeavors. There's a lot of overlap in what we believe about history together. The Old and New Testament accounts are both held by evangelical Christians and Mormons, but we differ significantly on our theology and in particular how one can be saved, which is kind of a big deal. And if you've watched our series at First Free called Undivided, you know that we would put a lot of this that I'm talking about in the dogma bucket. It's the most important stuff we believe and what determines if you're actually a regenerated child of God. And quite simply, Mormons are not. They, uh, according to our theology, are not regenerated children of God and they preach a false gospel, uh, which is a, a dangerous thing. And we certainly pray for them and, and would want them to find the truth. In, that's in the Bible they read, but they've added so much to it and distorted it that it is not a true version of what Jesus taught or the apostles taught or God handed down to us. So then the question is, when do we say we can't work together? When can we not partner with and what can't we partner with someone who disagrees with us theologically, who doesn't agree with the gospel, who believes a different version, uh, has a different religion? Can we work on a job together? Can we work in the same company together? Well, of course. Yeah, that's no, no problem. And we see that in scripture as well, working well with unbelievers and getting along with each other. That's fine. Can we do good in the community together? I think so. 
you know, let's say that there's some project to clean up a city and Mormons are involved and other Christians are involved, you know, different groups of people together, some people that would have a different faith are involved. Should should evangelical Christians then say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, if you don't all agree with my statement of faith, we're not going to help clean up the city or we're not going to go do this good thing or we're not going to help the poor. Or we're not going to provide for this food pantry or whatever it is. No, I, I think we can partner on those things and, and do good there without it corrupting our own theology. It doesn't mean we're going to start adopting what they believe as our views. And it doesn't even mean we're promoting their views by doing that. What about publishing a Christian book? So we're getting closer now. What if a Christian author writes a great book and there's a company that happens to be run by Mormon people who are willing to publish it? And, and maybe no other publishing company is willing to because I mean, we honestly, we see that kind of thing these days where there's a lot of um, discretion that publishing companies will take and what they're actually willing to publish. And so, you know, there are instances where there may be a company that doesn't share the same beliefs you have, but they're at least willing to publish your material. Is it okay to allow them to distribute your book, even if they have different beliefs? And that may be a, a personal conviction call. You know, we might put that in the conviction bucket and say, for some people, yeah, I'm okay with a company that's run by Mormons distributing my Christian book. That it, It's a business arrangement, you know, and, that, and that's all it is. I'm not saying I agree with all of their personal beliefs, but if they're willing to get this material out there to people, then that's okay. And so you can see how we're, get, we're edging right up now to the idea of a TV show. Um, books are a, a pretty easy one to talk about. Movies and TV shows are really difficult to produce and to make them really good and not have them be cringy. You know how many Christian movies have been produced and TV shows that just, they're not the type of thing you would necessarily recommend to other people because they just, they don't look very good and you get so distracted in the poor production quality sometimes or the poor acting, the poor writing, the poor directing, you know, you name it, poor graphics. And you end up saying, I love the idea, I love the concept. If this had been produced better, it would have been great, but it's just not something I would recommend to people because of the low production value. Well, what if you've got a company that's run by Mormons that's willing to help produce and distribute your Christian TV show or movie that's got great content and they're not saying you have to incorporate their Mormon theology, but they've got the production studio. They've got the distribution and it's a, it's a business arrangement. Um, and what if there are no Christian companies that can do that work? And, and maybe the alternative is working with a secular company who either will not put out your material, which is very likely, or will insist on so many changes that it doesn't even reflect a, the true scripture anymore. That, I think, is the situation that The Chosen was in. Would it be nice if The Chosen was distributed by an evangelical Christian company? Yeah, that'd be great. But as far as I know, none exist that could have pulled this off. So the choice is either to work with a secular company that definitely doesn't align with your beliefs at all and might force you to compromise on the content or work with a faith-based group, different faith, I know, but a, still a faith-based group, different theology, troubling theology, I'll admit it, but similar values and morals. And a lot of the history overlaps completely where they will get the content out there. It's an unfortunate choice. I agree. But personally, I think they made the right choice. I would rather have the chosen out there and available than not produced at all or produced very poorly. It was a big gamble 
to take a risk on this show too, by the way. I mean, Dallas has been open about the fact that up until The Chosen, his ventures into media were not good. <laughs> they were big flops. And he has this idea for a TV show and for any company to take the risk and be willing to put some money into this and some resources, there was no guarantee it was going to become the phenomenon that it is today and so popular. So I'm not sure any other company would have taken that risk on them. There's another aspect of this too that you may not realize, which is the Mormons actually have the best sets, the best movie sets and TV sets for Israel already built and ready for filming. So a lot of the work that you see with the buildings and the shots in Jerusalem and the, the different steps and, and pillars and columns and pools and all the things that you see there, the houses and all that, the Mormons have phenomenal sets that are really, really good and ready to go. And so the show was able to make use of those right away. That was something, some value that they brought to this equation that would have been horrendously expensive, I think, to try to produce otherwise. Now, now the show has enough um, clout that if they wanted to, you know, they might be able to produce some of those things on their own probably. But when they're sitting right there and they're just wonderful, and it, it is, it's a business arrangement. This isn't a church. <laughs> this is not really, it's not even a parachurch ministry. This is a business arrangement. This is an entertainment show. And I think that the producers of the show and Dallas Jenkins in particular have been very, very clear about that. Dallas Jenkins, I've seen some interviews with him talking about this. He's been very careful how he words things because he does not want to offend his Mormon counterparts and business partners. Certainly, I appreciate that. And and probably some Mormon th friends, which I think is wonderful. You know, it's, we should have friends who don't agree with us. We shouldn't just be exclusive on who we're willing to associate with and, and be with, for sure. But I believe Dallas, from what I've seen from him, is a strong Christian He's a believer. He understands the problems with Mormon theology, but he does not see this as a church. He sees this as a business venture, as a distribution partner, which is what it is. It's faith-based entertainment. It's a show that's written and directed by Christians. Not all of the cast are necessarily Christians. Uh, I'm fairly certain some of them are not Christians, and I know that some of them are different varieties of Christians that may or may not um, believe in the same gospel message. But, But really, I don't think the point of this is to teach theology as much as to show the life of Jesus in a really compelling way that's never been done before. And I think the benefits of it being there for us far outweigh the negatives of it not being an exclusively evangelical Christian created show. I've even seen in my own personal life, just friends and neighbors and other people who are not believers really get interested and ask questions based on the chosen. Uh, one other thing I'll share with you, I know that there were three main scholars that were consulted on the writing for The Chosen, and one of them was, I believe, a Messianic Jew, uh, so a Christian with Jewish background, an evangelical Christian, and a Roman Catholic scholar. I have not seen anything about there being any Mormon influence in the actual show. I also have not seen anything in the show that would make me think that there's been any Mormon influence behind the scenes, nothing that would like tease at Mormon theology. Or anything like that. I do know that Mormons, a lot of Mormons love the show and there's probably not a lot there they would disagree with because they agree with the New Testament and they agree with the history about Jesus. They disagree about the theology around Jesus, but the life of Jesus they're going to agree with. And so it broadens the audience for this. And who knows, it's possible that there'll be Mormons who, because of the connection with the Mormon distribution company, they watch the show and they start to get curious about it and they realize, huh, 
this, this Jesus seems a little different than the Jesus that I'm used to. So that's my thought about the Mormon connection with the Chosen. I also want to say that there are a lot of websites out there that are basically Christian hit blogs that attack the Chosen. And some people have even sent me examples of these. I've looked into those. What I saw on those so far were really harsh accusations that in my research turned out to be lies. So I haven't actually seen any claims yet about the Mormon connection with the Chosen and the supposed influence that was having that turned out to be true. And I watched the actual clips that they were referencing and the things they said Dallas said were not actually true at all. So that that presents a real problem for me. It's very interesting to me that people claiming to be evangelical Christians would be attacking this show written and directed by an evangelical Christian to try to get people not to watch it and would be lying in their accusations. So my conclusion to all of this is that The Chosen, it's just a TV show. It's not a church. It's not a parachurch. It's faith-based content. And you know what? If Disney puts out a movie next week with Christian themes and it's faithful to the text, am I going to support that? Yeah, I probably am. Not because I agree with everything Disney does, but I do want to send the message that, hey, content based on the Bible that's faithful and well done when it doesn't contain immorality and it promotes Christian values, that's desirable and I want to see more of that. That's why I loved it when Disney produced the Chronicles of Narnia movies and I went and saw those in theaters and thought, hey, this is great. Do I support those movies and go watch them in theaters because I love everything Disney does? No, but I do want to vote with my dollars and say, hey, more of this. This is is good. So I think the same thing could be true of The Chosen even if some of the people involved in making it and some of the distribution partners might not have the same beliefs that we do. So I know that was a long one. The next couple are going to be shorter, maybe a little bit more fun. I got a question, I think it was last week from someone, a couple of questions. And number four is, what's up with the dinosaurs? Did the dinosaurs miss the Ark ride? That's exactly how it was presented to me. So I love that question. It's super fun. I'll tell you, I've taken my family twice to the Ark Encounter, which is amazing. I highly recommend if you get the chance, go see the Ark Encounter Museum. It's a life-sized Ark, which will give you lots more information than I'm going to be able to give you here. It is as close to real life as possible. You walk in there, you see the animals. They have answers for just about any question you can imagine of, hey, if if the Noah's Ark account is real history, which I believe that it is, then what about this and what about that? So this question is what happened to the dinosaurs. The secular worldview is that the dinosaurs and people did not live together. I think there's a lot of evidence that that's not the case, that dinosaurs and people actually did coexist and outside the Bible and inside the Bible. Dinosaurs are actually in the Bible. God talks about two of them with Job. It's pretty clear from the descriptions those are not normal animals. Those are massive dinosaur animals. Isaiah mentions a flying fiery serpent. There are places where sea dragons are mentioned in the Bible. Um, so there, there were certainly creatures that it seems like were referenced in the Bible that we would today call dinosaurs. Large animals in the water, in the air, and, and traveling on the ground, and that's probably referring to dinosaurs, really, really big animals. Some of the most interesting work I've seen lately being done by secular scientists about dinosaurs 
shows that the number of different dinosaur species that supposedly existed in history were actually just different life stages for the same dinosaurs. I first got wind of this a few years ago, happened across a random video of a, of a, um, I guess an archeologist, I think, or a paleontologist, something like that, who had been studying dinosaur bones. And he had discovered that a lot of the different uh, fossils and skeletons that had been labeled as different species of dinosaurs were actually part of the same dinosaur species, just a different life stage. And what happens, he, uh, surmised was that when a scientist discovers new dinosaur bones, what they really want is to discover a new species because then they get to name that species and their name gets associated with it. And it's a huge credit thing. If they find a skeleton that is a different size and maybe has a little different structure because our bone structures can change over time from a very similar dinosaur, but with some little differences, their tendency is to just call it a new species. And so, most likely there are lots of dinosaur species that are referred to today by different names and different you know scientists who discovered them they're actually part of the life cycle of the same dinosaur species so there aren't nearly as many different species of dinosaurs i think and this is coming from secular researchers as what has often been purported so that's also kind of a clue for answering the question about whether they made it onto the ark most dinosaurs throughout history were small and belonged to fewer species than we often think in, in popular use existed. So we have fewer species than anticipated and most dinosaurs were small. They were, they were reptiles. They were different kinds of reptiles that we, some of which we kind of have today and some of which we don't. But here's the thing, all the dinosaurs started small. No matter how big they ended up, they all started as small babies. So when God sent two of every animal, he didn't need to send two full-grown adults. Two young reptiles would do just fine. In fact, that means they need less food while they're there. They take up less space and they have full reproductive potential after the boat ride. So actually better to take young dinosaurs that will then have all of their reproductive years ahead of them instead of more mature dinosaurs that would have less time to do that. So given what we're learning about the smaller number of species today, they may not have needed very many of these probably to produce the different varieties that we see in the fossil record. And they certainly didn't need every species either. They needed one of every kind. Just like there are loads of different dogs today that look very different from each other, but they're all from the dog kind. As long as you have two dogs on the ark that have all the genetic variability that with thousands of years of breeding produces all the different things we see today. And we can actually track a lot of this over the last couple hundred years and see how many different dog breeds have just been created, very distinct breeds over the last couple hundred years. If you can do that with dogs, you can do that with dinosaurs. If all you needed was a couple of dogs with all the genetic variability for the different varieties we see today, then all you needed was a few dinosaur pairs of different kinds that could create a lot of variability for all the species we see in the fossil record. So then, then what happened with the dinosaurs? Well, after the flood, you know, certainly two of every kind were brought on there. Not of course the sea creatures because they were just in the water, that's fine. It is possible that not all of the dinosaurs completely died out today. Today we have all kinds of reptiles and it's possible that under pre-flood conditions, these animals were able to grow much larger than they can in a post-flood world. So 
there are reptiles today that if they could would just keep on growing. And some of them get massive. You see some of these crocodiles that can just get enormous. And you've got Komodo dragons and other, other creatures like that that maybe in the post-flood world, the atmosphere and the conditions have changed such that they can't get as big as they used to. And certainly I think some of them did die off. Uh, maybe they were killed off, you know, maybe because they were a nuisance, maybe because of the meat. You know, we also know that mammoths were these massive creatures that were hunted by people. Uh, it seems to a great extent hunted to extinction. And so the same thing may have happened with the dinosaurs just a little bit earlier. So that was a fun one. Here's another fun one from the same person. I love these questions. These are these are super fun. And, and I'm, I'm tempted to do a whole five questions just on this next one, but I, I won't. I'll just keep it at this for now. What do we think about aliens and UFOs and other life, intelligent or otherwise, they said, in the ridiculously big cosmos that God came up with? That's a fun question. I honestly have no idea if extraterrestrial life exists. I do think it's possible, but it, it's kind of problematic for me. There's nothing in the Bible that even hints that aliens exist that doesn't prove that they don't. Some have questioned what it would mean for the fallen or redeemed state of the aliens if they exist, but I'm not really sure that presents a problem. Angels are in the same type of situation. They're not in the category of humans, and yet they exist, and they just have a different redemptive arc than we do. It's not really a redemptive arc at all, per se. They, they were given the free will to follow or reject God. A third of the angels, the Bible says in Revelations, rebelled against him. And then it seems those decisions were locked in for them. So they, they had the free will to choose to follow God, to continue following God or reject him. And two thirds followed God and a third didn't. Adam and Eve were given the same opportunity. And they both rejected. Eve was deceived. Adam knowingly chose to disobey. And that was passed on to the rest of the human race. And so uh, since angels exist outside of the normal human redemption arc, I don't think aliens would be any bigger of a problem for God. It, it might be a different arrangement we've never thought of before, but it's certainly possible God could have created them. Given what God has revealed to us, though, it doesn't seem likely to me that there are other beings out there. I don't know what the point would be, but then, of course, God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. If he did have other created beings out there, there's no reason he had to tell us about them. <laughs> that would be his prerogative. And for that matter, if he did create other beings, what would telling us about them accomplish? What would be the point of God saying, hey, by the way, you're not the only one. There are other creatures out there that I've made with consciousness, with free will, and we're running different stuff with them. I don't know. Uh, maybe God is glorified by other beings as well and enjoys interacting with them in a different way, just as he does with the angels. We know we're not the only created beings. So does that mean there's only two categories? It's just us and the angels slash demons who were angels? Are those the only categories? Or could there be more that we don't know about? I, I don't know. So I kind of doubt it personally, but I can't disprove it biblically. One thing I will say, though, if there are aliens out there, if they do exist, it doesn't hurt the Christian faith at all. The idea that a supreme creator that fine-tuned the universe and this planet for life could do it for another planet as well isn't out of the question and doesn't bother me. I do think, though, because part of this question was, what about UFOs? 
I do think that all the UFO footage that's come out lately, especially from the military sources, is really interesting. And I've looked into it a good amount, actually. I, I enjoy speculating about whether or not it's actually tech from other countries or tech from our military or tech from other planets or maybe even demonic activity. I don't hear that talked about a lot, but I wonder if it could actually be demonic activity. But let's say that it's not. Let's say that it is um, some other type of origin, not, not of a spiritual origin, but a physical origin. One thing I don't hear talked about a lot with the UFO footage or the UFO marks, blips on radars and other signal tech is that maybe it's not actually crazy flying tech, but maybe it's crazy projection tech or signal manipulating tech. Maybe it's not a physics-defying aircraft, but maybe it's some radical sensor technology or projection technology that's designed to confuse and throw off an enemy plane or ship. That, to me, seems way more likely than having aircraft that can move at supersonic speeds and stop on a dime, or suddenly go underwater, or teleport. You know, all the things that supposedly these UFO craft can do that, you know, the Pentagon has confirmed some of this footage and Navy pilots have confirmed some of these sightings. What if you had transmission technology, signal generating technology that could make it look like a dozen planes were approaching your position? Would that be a valuable asset in a combat situation? Absolutely. And what if you could turn off that switch and it seems like they teleported and turn it on again with different coordinates and it seems like they just jumped to a different position? And if you bump the machine, it looks like it went underwater accidentally. You know, I, I don't know. Change the shape of the transmission and now it looks like a different kind of craft. Imagine the potential of that kind of, let's call it mirage tech. It, it does seem like a lot of these sightings happen near military testing facilities or important military installations that have you know, nuclear missiles or things like that. So oftentimes this has been interpreted as maybe other governments are spying on our military sites. I don't know. The Chinese spy balloons don't seem like super high-tech things. If they're able to send these amazing craft with physics-defying technology over to spy on our sensitive sites, why are we why are we then seeing these slow-moving balloons trying to get better pictures than they could get from satellites? It just it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I wonder, it's total speculation, no biblical value to this whatsoever, it's just fun. I wonder if it's actually our government installing and testing defensive technology that messes with sensors or maybe is even to do some weird projections that can make pilots think there's something there that's not really there. I don't know. Total speculation. Super fun to think about. I want to thank all of you that have sent in your questions. It's really been amazing to see how much feedback has come after the first episode of this. I love that you're enjoying it. Uh, I love that you've made it this far. Those of you that have watched all the way through this episode too, thanks so much for doing that. And if you do have questions, feel free to send them to pastor at afree.org. I love to get those. I do try to research every one of those and I'll either reply to you in person or I'll stick it in a video like this and then more people get to watch it that way. So this has been the Five Questions Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. If you want to make sure you get future ones, do the subscribe thing and all that. Take care.